Hello and welcome to Monday Night Law. I am your host, Rob Kleiner, and here with me today is our very special guest co-host, Jing Han. Woohoo! Yes, Jing is very excited. And uh, before we start, we just have a little disclaimer. I wouldn't be a good attorney if I didn't have a disclaimer before I say anything. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, this is not legal advice. This is a podcast, and this is for educational or entertainment value, if that. Hey, Ching. Yeah? What is this? It's what Chinese sounds like to me. I no, mean, this is a guys. podcast. All right. Go ahead. Start talking. Is it legal advice? Uh, yeah. No, it's not legal You're, advice. Okay. I don't understand English that well, so I guess no. Yes. All right. That was our guest co-host, Jing Han. Thank you very much for being on the show with us. <laughs> we'll see you maybe someday. This is a lot of non-native English speakers. A lot of times, whether they ask or answer yes or no, part of themselves are guessing. I'm just showing you an example. I see. And so please tell us about your background. My background, um, I grew up in China, graduated from college in China from law school, and I came to U.S. for business school. Um, don't ask me why I did not attend law school basically because the two legal systems are very different so if i want to practice law in u.s i pretty much have to attend um law school here all over again um so i graduated from business school and now i'm in business um i have more than five years experience in english chinese interpretation and translation and i currently work with a hospital uh, acting as medical interpreter. And when I asked you to marry me, uh, did you understand that question? Oh, now I understand. Back then, I didn't know. <laughs> I thought he was just going to give me a ring or something like that. And yeah, I was like, right. sure, why not? You may not be picking up on Jing's dry wit, but I, I'm pretty sure she's joking. <laughs> okay, but we're here today. Actually, uh, Jing is our guest co-host here today because we're going to talk a bit about the law and foreign languages and people who speak foreign languages. Yep. Now, I was looking through the uh, Delaware Code, and I found an interesting uh, code site for people that rely on sign language interpreters. There is a section of the Delaware Code that basically guarantees they have the right to get a sign language interpreter. Right. For people that have uh, other, you know, that speak languages other than uh, American Sign Language, they can get interpreters, but it's not guaranteed in the code. It's in the court rules. You can hire a, a interpreter as an expert witness. Now, uh, we were talking earlier. Could you tell me the difference between interpreting a language and translating? Translation is translating is for written language, like a piece of paper. You translate language from one to another. Interpretation is for spoken language. Okay, so when there is a an expert witness in court who is converting foreign words into English words in real time as someone is speaking, which one is that? That would be interpreting. Okay. And in that specific term you said at the same time, that would be simultaneous interpreting. Well, that's interesting. Now, in uh, 
in Delaware, as with many other states, if you wanted to have an interpreter, uh, you would likely have to hire the interpreter. Each side could hire their own interpreter to, uh, to interpret a foreign language, and the court could also appoint an interpreter uh, on its own if they wanted to. Is this the you can do it or you must do it? You have the right to do it, but you may have to pay for it if you want to exercise that right. So what if there is a... Uh, let's say a non-English native, a native English speaker, who has to go to the court, but who also have very low income, cannot, who cannot uh, afford interpreter. Well, in a way similar to how uh, a low-income person could get an attorney appointed for them by the court. Uh, similarly, the court could appoint an interpreter sua sponte, which means sort of on its own, without being prompted by somebody. How the court- do they know they have such right? How does the court know? No, no, how do this person would know they have such right to asking for an interpreter? Well, they uh, they may be told that they're entitled to representation by an attorney, and if the attorney is unable to communicate with them because the attorney doesn't speak their language, or even if they do, if they realize the uh, their client doesn't speak English, the attorney would then be in a position to ask that the court appoint an interpreter. I'm glad you said so. Uh, when I work in a hospital, I encounter a lot of different kinds of patients who has very different level of language proficiencies. Someone don't speak a word of English, someone speaks perfect English, but the majority of them speak some English, some Chinese. By the way, I'm Chinese Mandarin interpreter. Um, however, for my case, even for myself, I speak. I consider myself speak good English. If I have to go to the court or if I go to see the doctor, I would prefer to have an interpreter with me. Because in hospital, we believe that it's not whether you deserve to have one, it's what you prefer to have one. Especially when talking about your health care or your cases in a court. Right, and that makes sense. I mean, if... If you are in a situation where you are not comfortable speaking English, uh, what's the worst that could happen if you ask, say, a police officer, could I have an interpreter? Right. Right, or, or I'm having trouble understanding. Better to, to do that well, uh, uh, than to not know, I, I imagine. This, very interesting you said so. A lot of times, actually, people themselves don't know um, how to ask, who to ask, or whether they can ask. This is a lot of times they have such problems because they don't know its availability or even they know, they don't know if it is for free. They don't know what other limitation they would be, they would have. A lot of other times uh, I encounter cases like people being um, told they would be they can access to language services but because of the culture background they instantly just decline it without thinking about it. Is it uh, a cultural sort of a matter of pride or is there something else to it? Well, it's like the case that we discussed earlier, right? That I think a lot of times this kind of the declination is based on a culture difference because we grow up by uh, being told that if people offer you something, you almost have to decline at first. You don't take the first offer because it would appear to be too eager. And just to bring our 
listeners up to speed, we were talking about a case called Liu versus State. It's a 1993 Delaware Supreme Court case. And uh, in that case, this guy Liu, a New York taxicab driver, was suspected of having uh, committed an, a, you know, a mur- murder, actually, an arson. He set a building on fire that had people in it, uh, which, which is awful, of course. Um, and so when the police came to him, they asked if, if they could ask him questions. They let him know what his Miranda rights were. They put a document in front of him that explained, and they also orally explained what his rights were, and he uh, signed that he would waive his rights. He checked the box. There was more than one box. He checked the one saying he waived his, his Miranda rights and would talk to the police. Uh, he talked to the police. They asked if they could search his apartment. They gave him another waiver, which he signed, and said they could search his apartment. And uh, eventually they found evidence that they wanted to use against him. And at court, Liu argued that his waiver uh, of those rights was, was not valid, that he, uh, he said he didn't fully understand the rights because he's not a native English speaker. And he also said that because of his cultural heritage of growing up in China, that uh, he did not, you know, he was not raised in a, a way where he would decline uh, a request made by an authority figure like a police officer. I can see why he said that, and it's totally reasonable. He said that. I'm not saying what he said is absolutely <clears throat> true. I'm saying it's reasonable. That's possibly true, because in our culture, like I just mentioned, if people offer you something, like when I in the hospital, I do this all the time. Um, the language services is available for you. It's for free. Everything will be confidential. Do you still need a help? No, I don't need help. They almost instantly just decline you on your first request because that's the culture. When we grow up, grow up, we're not supposed to accept people's offer on the first try because it would show us to be too eager. Like if people say, hey, Rob, welcome to my home. Do you want a glass of water? No, thanks. That's almost the standard answer. Your parents were told you do not accept the offer first time. It's almost considered rude. So I always walk around and tell them again and again until they think about it. Like, you know what? I actually do need an interpreter. This is the first case. Another case is our culture, um, unfortunately, we are very modest most of the time, but sometimes we're also very pride. I have people who consider themselves speak very good English, which may be true conversational English, but they might not speak good English or understand good English in a healthcare perspective or the court legal perspective. Mm-hmm. So they decline for that reason. So that's I think that's part of the culture is playing. Uh, it could be part. It could be one of the factors. Right. Well, the court in Liu basically said that culture could be considered under this totality of the circumstances approach. They they wanted to make sure that before a constitutional right is waived, uh, that it be waived only after the person waiving it uh, is well. If you're waiving a constitutional right, that waiver must be knowing voluntarily made and intelligently made. So you can't just not know what you're doing and accidentally wave. You have to know what's going on. Right. This coming back to another point you just mentioned, it's about authority, the relationship between people and authority. In China, the legal system, as I mentioned earlier, it's quite different with here. The whole culture and the political environment in there, for us, it's like authority and regular people relationship is you just obey. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the rule. You go to school, you obey to the teacher. You go to hospital, you obey what doctor tells you to do. 
you go to um, whenever you obey to whoever considered to be the specialty have the specialty knowledge people they are considered authority. But in U.S., the culture in between those relationship is more like customer and services. You go to school, yes, teacher can you obey teacher, but you can also say this teacher doesn't teach me the right way. I would love other teacher. Or you go to hospital, you say doctors. You can change doctors if you don't think your doctors do the right thing. In China, people almost won't do that. I saw my patient all the time saying, you know what? I don't like this doctor, but I dare not. They use the word I dare not to change them because. In their mind, they think some people in authority may they end up they may end up being punished because they challenge to the authority. So let alone thinking about they have option of certain rights for them, it's probably still something new. You know. So if a、saying? police officer says in China, "Can I search your house?" The person in China who's being asked this is thinking. They'll be able to search it anyway, and I'll get in more trouble. Is that the the cultural? The answer is almost yes. Let alone the police officer would not ask that. They will show you the 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 order, and they will just bust your door open and search. Well, here they can get a warrant too, and then they wouldn't have to ask. Right. But if they ask, and you say yes, then you're giving them an independent basis. They don't need a warrant if you give them permission. Um, I can't speak for the whole China. Like population, but I'm telling you, for me, I've been stopped by the police here, and people were asking me, "Can I see something or something?" When I say "can I," for me, it sounds like I want to do something. It's for me, it does not click to say I have an option. So, so you see, it is almost a kind of etiquette when they say, "Can I see?" Right. It's whatever. It's actually an order. It's just they're going to see it, and they're just trying to phrase it nicely. Yes. Yes, let alone in China, you probably wouldn't see the police officer say "Can I?" They wouldn't waste time and ask you "Can I?" They would just get a warranty and bust your door open if they really think there's something going on. Well,、uh, I would be careful in using that mentality in the U.S. because when you, when someone says "May I?" and you say "You may," now you're giving them permission that they may not have had before. Right. This is not only a culture difference, also a language difference. Is thinking about this, you come to a foreign country from, let's say, you come from China to U.S. The whole system for you is new. If a policeman come on to you, say, "Can I search your car?" You instinctly, my culture instinctly is like, "Yes," because he's a policeman. Whatever he asks, he get. But does that guarantee my right? That doesn't. How do I know it? After probably seven years stay in the country,、mm-hmm. so for a lot of people who come to this country, they don't always get notified or educated about their rights in this country. That is very special in this country that people actually get a lot of rights, and they don't get that kind of education. So they're giving up without knowing they have the choice of not giving up. Why not be get punished? And there are certain protections of the Fourth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, searches and and arrests and so forth that we may get into at a later podcast. But I don't want to spend too much time on that、sure. today. Just to understand that when you waive a constitutional right, like the right not to be searched unreasonably,、uh, that that the you know the Liu Court here in Delaware was saying that that waiver has to be intelligent, knowing, and voluntary. And、That's funny thing. That how can you determine a non-English speaker is knowing something intelligently while you yourself only speak English? 
the the test that the court uh, proposed was this totality of the circumstances test. So they look at everything involved, including the cultural heritage uh, of the accused in this in this case. So they looked at Mr. Liu's background, you know, that he was not a native English speaker, but they also looked at the fact that he'd been in the U.S. for a while, that he seemed to be able to converse well, not just with the police officers who, who spoke with him, but also there was an expert from the University of Delaware who testified, you know, about his ability to understand English uh, the fact that he, you know, lived in the U.S. for some time. This all was part of the totality. They also took into the fact that he was born outside of the country and raised in China, where he was more uh, prone to acquiesce to the demands of an authority figure like a police officer. So the court, you know, uh, their their test is to consider it all. It's it's not a very easy test to apply because you have to look at a lot of things, and, and it's very subjective, it seems. It is very subjective. For the fact that if people think he lived in his country supposed to speak language, it's a big assumption. We have a lot of people in this country for decades, but they still speak broken English or speak halfway English or guess all the way in their conversation. It could be they come to the country when they're older, they're not anymore very um, active in learning a new language, or because they hang out with people speaking their own language every day, not with English speakers. But the court also wanted to make sure they didn't make things too difficult for police officers in going about their duties. The court mentioned that they didn't want police officers to have to anticipate the frailties and idiosyncrasies of every person they question. Which I agree. I think police officers, majority of the police officers in this country probably grow up as a native English speaker to have a single profile culture background. People like this would not should not have the responsibility to determine a different culture, background people, understand a certain thing or not. It should not be their burden. I totally understand, but I think there should be a certain procedure uh, or a certain like education procedure to make sure that the target person understand fully their right and what they're giving up if they ever going to give up mm-hmm. in their own language. This is the minimum we can do to minimize the police officer's liability in determining whether foreigners understand English or not, because basically it doesn't make sense. Unfortunately, in the Liu case, by the time an interpreter got involved, he had already waived his rights, and all the interpreter at that point was able to do was testify that, you know, even though he couldn't know with 100% certainty, he believed that it was very likely that Mr. Liu understood what he was doing. I am not surprised because I see a lot of people when it's in a hospital, when they need to sign a consent without even the people, the nurses or doctor have the chance to explain to them what this consent talked about. They sign it. This is one of the, another culture thing about people's relationship with authority. They almost think if the authority people give you a piece of paper, you should sign it. In that way, uh, these people... That could people, them in disadvantage. Right. In that way, your, your clients at the hospital are actually assimilating very well into the United States because it's surprising how, how accepting people are. They'll just sign things put in front of them. People don't know what they're signing. Even people who speak the language and can read English, it's surprising. You know what? As the interpreter, we always practice in this way. We... We would not bear our own name on the consent form without having a healthcare provider um, educate 
the patient what the benefit and risk and the procedure that involves, no matter how simple it is. And you know, if you educate people, people actually they think about, they know about it, and next time they won't make the same mistake. And there's another、um, insight. I'm not sure how much it's gonna help you on that. Is in China we do have a lot of paperwork. Paperwork means nothing to most of the people. If the paperwork need to be signed, just means there is a less hoop you need to jump, so you sign it. Right. So yeah. it doesn't mean that much, but in U.S., if you sign something, you better look carefully because a lot of things you sign actually have a legal system to adjust it. Right. Yeah. A lot of things people sign,、uh, and and they're just some of these documents people sign are just ridiculously long, and no one really expects anyone to read them, but. You have to because they're going to come back someday potentially,、mm-hmm. and they're going to affect your your rights at some point. Right. But how many people do you think really read a car rental agreement,、uh, a mortgage、yeah. loan agreement?、Mm-hmm. I mean, all these you know,、uh, the agreement you have to agree to just to get an email account.、Uh, all these little agreements here and there, they're everywhere. But、uh, and I think some people may think. Perhaps incorrectly that if they don't read them, that they can't be held responsible for them. But、mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think this is often one of those issues where ignorance is no excuse. Now we've gotten off a little tangent. I don't want to、okay. stray too far. I actually want to bring up one、uh, last point, which is an interesting、uh, counterpoint.、Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about how people who don't speak English can get you know justice and due process in a court、mm-hmm. by the use of interpreters. Uh, but jurors in Delaware have to have a certain level of English proficiency, so you can't have、uh, a juror who requires translation, interpretation. Sorry, <laughs> you can't have a juror who inquire, requires interpretation just to fulfill their role as a juror, because there's a, a statute in Delaware that requires that jurors be able to read, write, and understand English. Right. In fact, there was an interesting、uh, case. Diaz versus State, which is a 1999 Delaware Supreme Court case, and basically one of the jurors in that case、uh, talked to the judge. You know, they, they basically said, "You're the jury. If any of you have any issues, bring them up with the judge, so we can make sure that we have a full jury." So juror number six says to the judge that、uh, he doesn't speak English very well, and he's worried that he won't be able to fulfill his duties as a juror. And the judge says, "Oh, don't worry about it. Sounds like you speak pretty good English."、Mm. Now, juror number six spoke Spanish, and some of the witnesses in the case、uh, spoke Spanish, and so they were going to have an interpreter for the witnesses. So the judge said, "Well, when the witnesses are speaking Spanish, you could just listen to them speaking Spanish, and the interpreter will interpret for you in Spanish, which,、mm. which is、uh, not." The way it would traditionally be done. In fact, it threw the prosecutor off. The prosecutor was surprised, and she said、uh, something along the lines of, "Oh, you want the translator to translate for the jury now?、You、the interpreter to <laughs> interpret for the jury now?" It was it was、uh, surprising to the prosecutor. She seemed to pick up on the fact that this is unusual, right? To have a non-English speaker on the jury who requires interpretation. Right, I understand. Like. Because most of the、uh, case were going to proceed in English language, so in order to understand a whole picture and a story, I think it is important for no matter non I mean non English native speakers to have a certain level of English understanding, at least understand the whole story and everything. 
But on the other hand, I think it is also important when the case involves non-native English speakers, especially people from another country. It is important to have their same culture background people on the jury, just as a you know a culture perspective gives some culture background knowledge for rest of the people, because we do have a lot of culture differences and. With someone with insights that can correct your point of view, if that is supposed to be a misunderstanding of the person's personality and stuff like that. Well, I, I, it is important that someone be able to be tried by a jury of their peers, particularly in a criminal matter. But having someone on the jury who doesn't speak the same language as the other jurors could be very difficult uh, in deliberations, and is not necessarily going to get that kind of cultural. Uh, context that I think you want. I I think the way that I would try to resolve that issue is by having if the uh, if one of the parties' cultures is important in the case to have an expert testify uh, about the culture and and its importance to the case at hand. Culture is of course important to, in every case, no matter how much it involved. You have no idea how much effect the culture can. Play on a people's act. Like there's certain thing we Chinese do, we're considered rude in U.S., but it's considered nothing in China, vice versa. But with people have only one culture background, and trying to determine another people have a different culture background, whether they are right or wrong, it's almost like it's almost like orange and apple. Okay. You need someone. To act as insight to give you some ideas about other culture. Someone to tell you not to eat the orange peel. Exactly. Oh, orange peel can be very expensive in China and considered Chinese medicine. Here we go. Or I guess someone to tell you to eat the orange peel. <laughs> the dried one would be good for you. Super expensive. Well, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our podcast for today. Uh, this has been Monday Night Law. I'm Rob Kleiner here with our guest co-host, Jing Han. And if you have any questions about this episode or any of our episodes in the past, you can reach me on Twitter at Monday Night Rob. Jing. So, what, are you, what are you saying, Jing? Monday Night Law. You have a, you have a Monday Night Law Twitter? Well, I'm not sure what you're getting at. Uh, my Twitter is Jing Jing Han 1025. See, I speak good English, but I still don't catch what you were trying to tell me. <laughs> Can okay. I get an interpreter? Can you spell your, your Twitter handle for It's J I N G J I N G H A N 1025. Okay, thank you. Thank you.